All right, if you don't know, we're in the book of Genesis. We're moving through it. Uh, we take a little idea on Sunday, and then we explore whatever chapter we're in thoroughly on Wednesday night. So you're invited to Wednesday night if you want to, right here, 7 o'clock. We can open to Genesis 4, because that's where we'll be. Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. I thank you for the gathering of the saints, the praises that have ascended, the prayers that have been offered. I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of one to another. I thank you for the community and the strength that comes from being in community, being with people who have the same king, who live for the same kingdom, who are working for the same goals. And even this morning, Lord, I pray that we'd be more united around our king and community and this kingdom. So would you speak? Would we listen and obey? And I pray this in your name. Amen. So um, about four years ago, it was a beautiful, sunny, summer evening. Don't you miss those? Has been, this been the longest winter ever? Like crazy. Please stop raining. Please, sun, come out. So it was just this beautiful night. And we decided as a family we were going to go for this walk down our little lane and out onto Walker Road. So my older girls each had longboards, and they decide they're going to ride their longboards. And then my youngest daughter, Gabrielle, who was about seven, I mean, if you know her, she's quite a firecracker. She's very much in it to win it. Uh, very much, I'm going to go for it, competitive. I will push you down to get what I need. All right? She's a lot like her mother. So <laughs> hold that against her. But <laughs> So she decides she's going to ride my longboard. So I'm like, okay, a little worried because of her kind of personality. So she gets a longboard and we head out and we, we make it down Walker Road and up the little hill to Cloverlawn and we turn around, everything's great. And I stop and I'm adjusting something on Elijah's bike when Gabrielle at the top of this hill gets on the longboard and then just shoves off. And so Charity and I look at each other and we're like, uh-oh, this is not gonna end well. But at that moment, what do you do? Because if I yell at her, she might turn and wreck. She's going fast enough that my 4440 speed probably won't catch her. So it was really Charity and I sitting up there, standing up there watching this progression of what we know, this will not end well. So there goes Gabrielle, she's picking up speed and she at some point realizes, what have I done? And so she just starts to kind of crouch down this longboard, getting lower and lower and lower. And then she hits speed wobbles. And it looks like she's a pretty good athlete. It looks like she's going to take the speed wobbles, but nope. She goes full superwoman, dives off the front of that board onto the slip and slide, I should say slip in sand of the asphalt, losing, I don't know, five pounds of flesh. The worst part of it was his mom and dad standing at the top of the hill just going, ah, like watching this slow motion train wreck that what had begun was not gonna end well. Have you ever had circumstances 
like that in your life? Something that you begin, you realize pretty quickly, oh, this will not end well. Maybe it was when you had kids. Oh, this will not end well. 18 years of this, oh my goodness, it's not gonna end well. All right? We kind of have that scenario in Genesis 3 and from that point on. There's something that happens in Genesis 3. We looked at that last week, sin. And now we're gonna see, oh, this will not end well. What has begun, what has been put in motion by chapter three very quickly wrecks and gets ugly. So chapter four, just page two in your Bible. Let's look and see what happens. Verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. I love his wife. Very important there. Young men, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. This is a fascinating statement. It is interpreted millions of different ways in different translations. We'll look at it on Wednesday. What is she saying here? And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his land. And excuse me, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. Cain spake to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Downhill fast. Sin in Genesis chapter three now crescendos and it wrecks into a capital offense. Cain killing his brother Abel. Murder. So we're gonna go CSI this morning and we're gonna try to figure out what leads to this because the tendencies I think of Cain are in most of us. What he does is not all that different than how we live. So there are two things I had a bunch. I narrowed it down to two. There are two things I think we need to take account of and note because maybe just maybe we can do the same thing. So choice number one is this, pagan or partner. Choice number one that Cain and Abel face, I believe, is pagan or partner. Notice verses three through five again. You've got Cain, he's the first one to bring an offering. It's not Abel, it's Cain. Cain brings this offering, offers it. Abel brings his. God accepts Abel's. 
But it says this, he had no regard, no regard for Cain. It doesn't say he was angry at Cain. It doesn't say he was upset at Cain. It just says no regard. It's God is indifferent, ignores Cain. Now, please note that this is a free will offering. God has never said up to this point, hey, I demand you give me stuff. This is Cain and this is Abel seeing the world and realizing they're stewards. God has given them all this stuff. They're simply stewards of it. And their response is, we want to give back something to God. All right? There's no problem with a grain offering versus an animal offering. Read Leviticus. There are grain offerings. So there's no problem with the offering. God doesn't say, hey, wrong kind of offering. All God does is act indifferently toward Cain's offering. It's like God just says, meh, whatever. So imagine for a second, imagine this. Let's say you have someone really important to you. It's your spouse, maybe it's a parent, uh, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's a girlfriend, someone who is super important to you. And for no reason, it's not an anniversary, it's not a birthday, it's just you realize, hey, dad, for 18 years, you have worked your tail off for me. You've paid for everything. I wanna give back something to you. And so you work at some kind of a project. You knit a hat, you bake a cake, you make a painting. You work at getting some kind of an offering for this very important person. You bring it into their presence, you give it to them, and they just say, eh, put it in the corner. While you're there, a sibling comes in or a cousin or the receptionist comes in, gives the same offering and this person goes crazy. Wow, thank you so much. They put the hat on right now. They, they hang the painting on the wall. They eat the cake right there. Thanks, this is awesome. It's exactly what I wanted. How would you feel? That's our story. That's Cain and Abel, right? So the question then is, why does God do this? Why does God receive Abel's offering, but acts indifferently toward Cain? Now, here's where I'm at. And Wednesday, I'll explain more why. Uh, read Hebrews 11 about this. Here's where I'm at. And, and I'll explain it by a story that I think illustrates it. It's a story I've said before, but I think it captures perfectly the Cain and Abel problem here. It's a story about this farmer who grows carrots. And he's out harvesting his carrots one day and he pulls out this carrot and it's the most perfect, juicy, beautiful carrot he has ever grown in his life. And the moment he pulls it out, he just thinks, I have to give this to my king. I have to give this to my king. So he wraps it up, gets on his horse, rides into town, gets an appointment with the king, comes in, unwraps his carrot and says, oh king, I found this carrot this morning and when I saw it, I said, this is the best carrot I've ever grown in my life. And I instantly knew I have to give this carrot to you, O king. And so the king takes the carrot and says, thank you. And looks at the farmer and says, hey, I've got 20 acres right next to your land. I never used that 20 acres. I wanna give you the 20 acres, it's yours. And the farmer's like, oh no, I didn't come for that. I just wanna give you this carrot. I, I know all that. Take the 20 acres, it's yours. Whoa, okay. And the farmer leaves. Well, there's a nobleman who was in the court who saw this happen and he thought to himself, hmm, that's a pretty good deal. So he goes home, goes home that night, goes into the stalls where he keeps all of his horses, finds his prized stallion, 
never been ridden by another human. Next morning, he grabs that stallion, brings it into town, gets into the courtroom of the king and says, oh, king, this last night I was in my stalls and I saw this stallion and this is my prized stallion. It's the greatest horse in the land. And I knew instantly that this stallion must belong to you. You're the only person that should ever ride this stallion. So I brought it this morning and I give you this stallion. And the king takes the stallion and goes, meh, whatever, and walks away. And the old man is like, ho, 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 ho. What was the deal? Yesterday, this farmer gives you a carrot and you gave him 20 acres. I give you a prize, priceless stallion. And all I get is, meh, whatever. What's the deal, king? And the king answers, the farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. And that's the problem. I believe that what happens here with Cain and Abel is Abel gives God his offering and Cain gives himself his offering. It's what you would call this. It's paganism. All right. Cain is a pagan. Now I think Instantly, when you think of paganism, we think of like pentagrams and witchcraft and dancing around a bonfire and Ozfest and goatees and goat heads and wolf howling t-shirts. That's not paganism. Paganism is much more subtle than that. Paganism, here's the idea of paganism. Paganism is the idea that you or I can manipulate and buy off God. That's paganism. Paganism at its root is this. If I give something to God, bribe God with a blood sacrifice, with some kind of a ritual, with some kind of difficulty, with church volunteering, with tithes, with offerings, that if I give this thing to God, I'm actually bribing him and I'm gonna back God into a corner so that he has to do what I demand he does. That at its core, is paganism, that I can control and I can manipulate God by my offerings, by what I do. That, that is paganism. God owes me something. I've made him indebted to me. God, I believe, in chapter four of the book of Genesis is saying, I don't play that game. You will not buy me off. You will not play paganism toward me. You're not, I'm not gonna play that game. That that begins right here. And the end is Cain's mad, which to me is one of the ingredients why I believe it's paganism. I think many people, this is the first church service, by the way, isn't it? Half the population of the world is in it. But half of the half of the population is there for the wrong reasons. I think many people come to church for pagan reasons, that we're coming in an effort to kind of manipulate and make God do our bidding. That we're coming here with a very Cain-like attitude. We're just like Cain. And I ask, I say, you can evaluate, I think, if you're a pagan or not by some simple questions. Two of them, in fact. Number one, does God like me? If you say yes. Number two, why? Does God like me? And if he does, why? Well, Matt, come on. God totally loves me. Because when those baskets went by, 
I threw in some bennies, some greenbacks. God loves me. No, God doesn't love you for that. I love you for that, thank you. (laughs) But God does not love you for that. That's paganism. That's the same idea. I'm going to buy off God. I'm going to earn his favor. He's going to be indebted to me. He is going to owe me. There's some reason why I'm special and why God should bestow his favor upon me. That's paganism at its root. And I'll tell you, that's in me. Paganism is totally in me. So I've given this story before, but it's the best illustration I have. I went to Western, graduated in August, and it was a unique situation for me because I'm going to school and I'm there with younger men, usually 25, 30 years old. And these 25, 30 years old, 30 year old men, they're going to school for one job, mine. Like they want my job. Oh, to be a lead pastor, right? So I have the job and I'm going back to school. So I get there and I'd go for two weeks and I'd often meet new people and we'd go out to eat. And then the questions start. Hey, so what do you do? Well, I am a pastor at Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Well, what, what's your job there? Well, I do primarily the teaching and leading. Oh, really? Next question. You know what it is? How big is your church? That is the next question almost every single time. Well, how big is your church? And so part of me wants to like take a picture of this or like the rogue bowl on a full like Easter and be like, well, you know, I don't know how many people. You tell me, you count. I don't know right? Because the average size of a church is 70 people. So we're a little bit bigger than that. So there's part of me that's like, oh, look, look, you know, look at that. But I made it like a, maybe a decision in my own brain that I wasn't going to do that. So my answer, my standard answer became this. Well, you know, after 10 years, uh, we're still meeting in an elementary school gym. And then almost nine out of 10 times, the response from the other person would be like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry for you. That's terrible. <laughs> And there would be erupting in me this thing like, they'd be like, man, I'll be praying for you. I don't need your prayers. I am successful. Come on. Let me show you a picture, all right? Why? Because there is in me this little thing like, I worked hard to get this. Most pastors preach 40 times a year. I preach 90. I'm way over double what most preachers preach. I work my tail off. And so I want to be like, I earned this. I deserve this. I hit God right. And he gave me my wish. It's paganism at its core. But when I sit in the dark of my study and I'm there in the morning and I really think about Edgewater and what God has done, I know it's not me. I 100% know it's not me. There are men that are better smarter, more equipped, better, more eloquent, better looking, bigger muscles that have much smaller churches than me, than this church right here. And so I know in those moments, no, this thing is God's grace. No, this thing is God's grace. See, there's a pagan in most of us. We say, well, I've been to church this whole week or this whole month or this whole year. Every Sunday I was in church. God, you owe me. God, I have not watched an R-rated movie in six weeks, God, you owe me. I tuck in my shirt, God, you owe me. I wear a belt and pull up my pants, God, you owe me. I have not cussed in, in oh, well, there's that one time in the car, but nobody heard me. 
God, you owe me. We all have these little pagan rituals where we believe for some reason we're special and now God owes us favor. And when God does not show us that favor, what happens in our heart? We get angry just like Cain. How could you bless Abel? Don't you know, God, how much harder it is to raise crops than sheep? Oh, don't you know, God, I am ticked. Don't you know what a sinner he is? I'm his brother. I know what a sinner Abel is. He does not deserve your regard. He does not deserve your favor. He does not deserve your blessing. You ever felt that way? God, why'd you give that guy the promotion? God, why'd you give her that husband? Why did they have that house? Why'd they get that raise? Why'd they get that lucky break? God, I deserve those things. Why would you give it to them? That at its very core is paganism. Thinking that because of things that we do, we can back God into a corner and we can manipulate him and force him to drop to us what we think we deserve. And whenever you live that way, the end result is you'll be angry at God because God does not respond to that. God here in chapter four is saying, That's, I don't play that game. That's not the game I'm gonna play. I play a very, very different game. Not paganism, I think what God wanted from Genesis 1 and what God still wants today is covenant partners. And covenant partners are very different. It's like Abel. Abel knew this. I don't give life to the lambs. I don't make the sun rise. I don't make the rain fall. I don't make the grass grow. I don't do any of those things. God, thank you. But on the other hand, Abel knew this. I still have to tend the lambs and I still need to care for them. I still have to go after the one that strays. I still have to bind up their wounds. I'm partnering with God. Man, it's a partnership. That's what works. So there's this great saying, and I, I wholeheartedly believe in it. And it's this, without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. Like the way to go forward in life is not paganism, thinking I can manipulate God and make him do what I want, but rather joining with God and saying, God, what's your program? And how do I get on board? How do I join with you? How do I do what you're doing? That's the right way to live. Augustine put it like this, and I love this quote. God provides the wind and we must put up our sail. God, without you, I couldn't, but I'm partnering with you in this thing. I'm raising my sail and let's go. Paganism though, is thinking that you and I can buy off and back God into a corner and demand that he does certain things for me. You know what? There are Christian theology systems built on figuring out the formula, how to get what you want from God. Those are dangerous to me. They're dangerous and they're pagan. So why are you in church today? Cain or Abel? Why am I in church today? Cain or Abel? Did I come to whack the God genie so that he'll give me a wish? Or did I come in response to his grace and his goodness? Did I come in response to everything he's given for me? Am I a partner or a pagan? Why are we here this morning? That's question number one. Question number two follows on it. And it's when God sees this tendency in Cain, he immediately says this, it's verse seven. Choice number two. If you do well, will you not be accepted? K 
Cain, figure it out, bro. You'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. Question number two is this. You're gonna be ruled or you will rule. I don't believe there is a third way. In life, you're going to rule or you're gonna be ruled and there is no third way. It's one or the other. And Wednesday, we'll look at this. It's fascinating to me that sin is personified. It's not some kind of force or some kind of ambiguous thing. God here personifies it as something that is at a door crouching, ready to devour, which the New Testament kind of picks up on that language a bunch. That's not just some kind of ambiguous thing out there that is real and alive and terrible and powerful and it wants to steal and kill and devour and destroy. It's personified here. So Cain is given an option by God. Listen, bud, it's a warning. I'm warning you. This thing is right outside your door. It's right outside your door and you need to rule over it or it's gonna pounce and destroy you. I think the New Testament actually picks up on this idea and it's in Romans six, you can turn there because that's where we're headed. And this is something I deal with with people all the time where they tell me, man, sin is crouching at my door. It's devouring me, it's killing me, it's consuming me. Week after week, I can't seem to get over this thing. Matt, help me. Most often I take that person to Romans chapter six because there to me, it explains the two routes. You're gonna be ruled or you will rule and there is no third way. So open with me, if you would, to Romans chapter six. Listen to these texts and then I'll talk for a second. At some point, you're gonna deal with this, whether in your own life, a consuming sin, family, friends, business relations, some point, maybe you are right now, a consuming sin. Listen to what the Bible says. Romans 6 is fantastic. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. To pass there. Unrighteousness or righteousness. No third way. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Two ways. Sin that leads to death or obedience that leads to righteousness. Then lastly, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You don't hold still with sin. It leads you to more sin. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
The other side, you give yourself to righteousness, it leads to sanctification. Sanctification is a word, it has roots in the Old Testament, where a vessel would be sanctified. It meant this, it's completely set apart to God. Here's the choice. And if you miss this logic, I don't think Christianity ever makes sense because we're really pagans at the core. So when I deal with people on sin, almost never is the problem the sin. Most people that are coming to me, they're like, man, I'm sick and tired of this sin. This sin is ruining my life, right? The the drug addict, the meth addict is not saying, I really love being addicted to meth. I love what it's doing to my body. I love what it's done to my family. I, I just enjoy this. No, they're coming and saying, I'm so tired of this addiction. It is killing me. It's stealing, killing, destroying me, devouring me. It crouched and it pounced, and now I'm under its control. Guys, I have anger issues. Matt, I just want to control my temper. Something happens at home with my kids, with my wife, at work, and I just snap. And it's ruining my relationship with my wife, with my kids, with coworkers. I've lost jobs over it. I, I want to get rid of this anger issue. Porn. Man, porn's just consuming me. I look at people differently. Man, it's taking all my time. It's destroying me. Matt, how do I get rid of this issue? Right? Adultery. Hey, it's ruining my marriage. Matt, help me. Right? So I, maybe one out of a hundred are like, I love my sin. 99 that come to me are like, I can't stand this sin. It's killing me. But here's the thing. Most of the people want to be free from that sin because it's ruining their life. That's the problem. Most of the people want to be free from that issue because they know it's killing kind of what I want to do, how I want to live. It's killing me. Very, very infrequently is a person saying, this sin is not allowing me to serve God wholeheartedly like I'm supposed to. And that's what it's supposed to do. If you notice in this text over and over, it's saying this, listen, you died to that thing, that sin, not to live for yourself. You died to that sin to be wholeheartedly setting a slave now to God. It's both of those things. Only half of it is paganism. So very often the guy will come to me and he'll say this, Matt, give me the formula. Give me the groups to go to. Give me the people to talk to. Give me the book to read because I want to get rid of this thing. It's paganism. If I just can do these things right, these steps right, then I'll be free from this sin and then I can go on with my life. I tell them that will never work. There's no third path. It's either you're a slave to unrighteousness or you are a slave to righteousness. There is no third path. But so often what people want is what I call a self help Jesus. I just want to be kind of my guru and give me some advice on life so I can figure out how to do life better for myself. They don't want to be sold out to Christ. They just want to self-help Christ. They, they want to be free from sin, but they don't want the other side, which is submission to the Father. They want Jesus, good old Jesus, but they do not want the Lord Jesus, the one to whom they must submit and who is the king of their life and gets to tell them what they can and cannot do. They don't want that. I say it's like this. We treat Jesus so often like Walmart. We avoid the place like the plague because it's full of pagans. And then when we're really desperate, when we really need something, then we head on down to Walmart and get what we need, right? And then leave as quickly as possible. 
It's a lot of people, how they treat Jesus. I'm avoid him like the plague, but now I got some problems. I got some issues. I got some needs. So now I'm going to go shopping and demanding what I want. Give me this stuff. Let me ring the God bell, right? So that you drop for me my wishes. See, the major issue with so many people when it comes to sin is they don't really want to go 100% in. Just give me enough, Jesus, so I can live my life. Well, here's the thing about Christianity. Galatians 2.20 says this, Christianity is not about me becoming a better mat. Galatians 2.20 says this, that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Christianity is this, you die and now you live for Jesus. That's the only way it works. There is no third way. It's either sin to unrighteousness or the savior unto righteousness. There is no third way. Rule or be ruled. Cain, those are your choices right now. That's it. And sadly, so many people want to try to forward a third way. And Jesus gives this great little parable about someone trying to do that. I just want a little bit of Jesus, but I still want to live for me. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. It's a story about this man who has a demon. Sin's crouching at his door, devouring him. He knows he's got a problem. So the demon is cast out and it says the man swept his house clean and empty. The third way. You know, I just need to get free of that sin and then I'm gonna live for me, my house, my thing, my deal. And Jesus says that demon that left him goes out, gathers up seven other demons worse than him and they come back, they re-inhabit the man's home and his final state is worse than his first state because there is no third way. It's either sin that leads to more unrighteousness, iniquity to iniquity, or it's selling out for Jesus that leads to complete sanctification. Those are our two options. And how many times have I dealt with people where they just wanna get rid of their sin and they seem like they do well for a little while and then they end up in a situation where you say, you're even worse than you were before, buddy because you can't, there is no third way. It's either you're gonna rule this thing or you're gonna be ruled by it. You're either gonna be a slave to unrighteousness, serving it, or you're gonna be a servant, a slave to righteousness. That's it. But I believe wholeheartedly that God does not have timeshares. He doesn't say to believers, hey, give me Sunday, and you can have Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday to do whatever you want. And then just give me Sunday again. I don't believe that. I don't believe God is, if you would, polygamous, that he shares his bride with other people, other sinners, other sin. He says, you are either 100% for me or you're not. That's all there is. There is no third way. So Jesus in Revelation chapter three says to the church, be hot or be cold, one or the other. Because if you're trying a third way, the lukewarm way, Jesus says, I'll make the choice for you. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Be hot or be cold, be in or be out, be 100% sold out to Jesus or not. It's the only way it works. Christianity only works when we say, Jesus, I am bought by a price. Therefore, I will glorify you with my body. 
1 Corinthians 6.20, that you own me, I'm your slave. Everything else to me is paganism. Everything else is trying to manipulate God to give you what you want instead of you saying, not my will, but thy will be done. I submit to you as my king and Lord. And I'm convinced that the table is one of the keys to grabbing our hearts because I've got a cane in my heart. I've got paganism in my, in my heart. I've got lukewarmness in my heart. But it's at the table that here's what I'm reminded of. Jesus gave 100% for you and me. He didn't give part of himself, kind of give something to us. He said, I am wholly committed to my bride. I'm leaving heaven, leaving paradise, leaving comfort, coming, serving as a man, and then dying for your sins, 100%. And when I look at that, when I look at the cross, when I'm reminded of the good news, it can have a profound effect on me. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power unto salvation. When I'm reminded of the gospel, the true gospel, what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus is doing in me, when I'm reminded of that, it can recapture my heart. And then I say, okay, I'm all in. Okay, I'm all in. So my prayer in preparing this message, which is a tougher message, was that we would consider, why are we in church? Why am I here? Am I responding to the goodness and the graciousness and the undescribable, unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ? And because he has loved me, I love him in return. That's Christianity. That's beautiful. That's the gospel that's able to change me Romans 6, 19, and sanctify me and set me apart for his treasure and his glory. Or, or am I Cain trying to ring the God bell in such a way that he'll notice me and give me favor? Because at the end of that, it goes downhill. Anger, murder. Why are you here today? Why does God love you? Have you somehow earned something, deserved something from him? Or, or, did Jesus demonstrate his love for you that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. When you were your absolute worst, that's when he showed his love for you. If he loved you when you were your worst, then there's nothing you can earn or deserve more of that love. It's already been given to you. So my hope and prayer is as we eat and drink, our hearts are recaptured by the gospel. And we don't try to manipulate God. And we don't try to play the, the game of in and out with God. It's, I am 100% yours. Jesus, I belong to you. So Father, I thank you for this unspeakable gift displayed here, exemplified here this morning with the bread and the cup that you who knew no sin became sin, that I, Edgewater Christian Fellowship, might become the righteousness of God. That it's the gospel that makes me sanctified, holy. And I ask forgiveness, Lord, for the pagan Cain in me that thinks I need to come up with some kind of a reason 
why you should love me and favor me. When the only reason why you love and favor me is because Jesus bought me and I belong to you. That's why. Cure me of that, Lord. I pray as a psalmist that you would search our hearts and see if there'd be any wicked way in us, any pagan idea in us, and that you would cleanse us from that and lead us on the path everlasting, the path of joy and love and abundance instead of anger and murder and violence. Protect us from ourselves, Lord. We know that there is sin crouching, waiting right as we walk out these doors to consume us and destroy us. And so we pray that this Sunday afternoon, Lord, your spirit would come into us. Your body would protect us. Your blood would shield us from that enemy. And that we would be slaves of righteousness unto sanctification. That this week we'd walk forward into your arms, into your kingdom, into you as our Lord. So recapture us, Lord, this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.